most of us here this morning, perhaps nearly all of us here this morning, uh, sense a call into the ministry. What would you say ought to stand at the center of that ministry? Don't be abstract about it. Make it personal. The Lord has called you from some place. The Lord has called you from some life to be here. You've left behind something for this. The thing to which you are training to do, the thing which you're training to do, uh, the ministry which you're training to undertake, what ought to stand at the center of it? Well, in our passage this morning, uh, as the Lord speaks to Ezekiel, He leaves no doubt what the center of Ezekiel's ministry ought to be. Our passage this morning is part of the larger scene of chapters 1 through 3 of the book of Ezekiel where God is calling Ezekiel into his prophetic ministry. And in the specific verses that are before us this morning, we see God making very clear what he already had addressed in a vision immediately preceding the passage that we've read this morning. And that is that the Word of God must be at the center of Ezekiel's ministry. The Word of God must be the very beating heart of everything that Ezekiel does. Now, while we most certainly aren't Ezekiel, we do share with Ezekiel his charge. God is calling Ezekiel to take his word and to bring it to those who are around him. God calls us, as his servants, to do precisely the same thing. The challenge that God is laying before Ezekiel in our passage this morning, he also lays before us a challenge that's bracing, and a challenge that is exclusive. God's servants must declare His all-revealing Word and nothing else. Now first, God makes very plain to Ezekiel that God's servants must declare His Word. Now look with me again at verses 16 through 21. Uh, beginning in verse 16, we read this, And it came to pass at the end of seven days that the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, I have made thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore hear the word at my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say unto the wicked, Thou shalt surely die, and thou givest him not warning, nor speakest to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life, that same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thine hand. Yet if thou warn the wicked, and he turn not from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but thou hast delivered thy soul. Again, when a righteous man doth turn from his righteousness and commit iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die, because thou hast not given him warning. He shall die in his sin, and his righteousness which he hath done shall not be remembered. But his blood will I require at thine hand. Nevertheless, if thou warn the righteous man, that the righteous sin not, and he doth not sin, he shall surely live because he is warned. Also, thou hast delivered thy soul. Here, as God says in verse 17, he's calling Ezekiel to be a watchman unto the house of Israel, he says. Now, a watchman in those days was something of a military figure. Most larger cities would have walls around the cities. A wall is largely built to keep the city safe from invading armies, uh, attacking armies. And a watchman was someone who would stand on the wall of the city 
He would scour the horizons around the city for any evidence of an approaching army. If the watchman were to see something, if he were to see a hostile army, his responsibility was to come immediately into the city to warn the people of what was coming, to warn them of the danger that was stalking toward their city. That's what a watchman did. He warned others of looming danger so that they could be prepared when that danger arrived. Now in these verses, God is setting Ezekiel apart as a watchman for Israel, setting him apart as one who was to warn Israel of the torrent of judgment that lay upon the horizon and that was bearing down upon them. Now back in chapter 1 of Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel had received a vision, this grand vision of the glory of the Lord. And that vision had presented God very much as an approaching warrior. God's divine throne was presented as something of a chariot. And Ezekiel saw it coming in the clouds of divine judgment. And Ezekiel saw that that chariot of judgment was barreling toward God's people from the north, the origin of so much of Israel's afflictions. God was presenting Himself to Ezekiel as the divine warrior who was coming in judgment against Israel. And here in our passage this morning, He's telling Ezekiel that it's His job to warn Israel of what He's seen. As the watchman for Israel, Ezekiel is to tell Israel that the judgment of God is bearing down upon them. Now that's in perfect accord with what had come immediately before the passage that we read this morning. In the verses leading up to our passage, God had spoken to Ezekiel and had commanded him to eat a scroll. And on that scroll, according to Ezekiel, there was mourning and lamentation and woe. That scroll was the message of impending judgment that Ezekiel was to proclaim to all of Israel. And here, in our passage this morning, God is telling Ezekiel that once more that he must proclaim that message of warning to the people of Israel. He was obligated to tell them that judgment was coming. But God wasn't just reiterating something that He already had said. God is making much more clear, much more explicit, the solemnity of the charge that rests upon Ezekiel as the watchman of Israel. You look again at what God says to Ezekiel in verse 18. God's judgment is bearing down upon the wicked of Israel if Ezekiel does not proclaim that advancing judgment. If Ezekiel doesn't warn the wicked as God is commanding him to do, the wicked still will die in his sin. You know, Ezekiel's failure to warn the wicked will not mitigate the guilt of the wicked. The unwarned wicked will still be judged but his blood will be upon Ezekiel's head. Ezekiel also will rest under the judgment of God. If Ezekiel doesn't proclaim the word of God, if he doesn't tell the wicked that judgment is coming, he will be accountable. Accountable even for their rebellion, even for their death. However, as God says in verse 19, things will be much different, at least for Ezekiel, if he faithfully proclaims the warning that God has given to him. As God says there, even if Ezekiel does warn the wicked, that won't change the wicked. The wicked still will die in his iniquity. Even if Ezekiel, as a faithful watchman, 
proclaims the coming judgment, the hard hearts of the wicked will reject that warning. They'll still die under God's judgment. But Ezekiel will be spared. He will have proven faithful and he'll be spared. Now down in verses 20 and 21, God repeats largely the same scenario in relation to the righteous. As God says in verse 20, if a righteous man turns from his upright ways, falls into sin, he'll die in that sin. In fact, the sin will mark him. His righteousness will be forgotten. And if Ezekiel hasn't warned him, God will require the blood of that man at Ezekiel's hands. Again, Ezekiel will be accountable for the rebellion, for the death of the formerly righteous man because he had remained silent rather than proclaiming the word of God that had been given to him. Ezekiel's silence would be wicked. It would be as culpable, it would be as rebellious as any of the depravities of the formerly righteous man. But, as God tells Ezekiel in verse 21, everything will be different if Ezekiel, in faithfulness, declares the word that has been given to him by God. If Ezekiel does that, if he warns the righteous man that judgment is coming, that righteous man will repent, he'll live, and Ezekiel's soul also will be delivered. In the most grave, the most dramatic of terms, God is pressing upon Ezekiel that he must declare the word of the Lord. Ezekiel has no option. There's nothing here left to Ezekiel's discretion. He's been given a word and he's to declare it. If he does, his soul will be spared. Even if no one heeds the word, even if Ezekiel the watchman is mocked, scorned, rejected, even if he is completely turned away, if he is warned of the coming judgment, his soul will be spared. The blood that will be spilt in judgment, it'll be spilt, but it won't be on his hands. If Ezekiel remains silent, if he declines to proclaim the word of judgment that's been given to him. He won't stop the advancing judgment. And not speaking of it won't delay it one moment. Denial of the judgment bearing down on Israel won't make that judgment go away. The judgment will come. It will consume the nation. And, it'll consume, and it will consume Ezekiel along with them. It will level both the wicked nation and the rebellious prophet who wouldn't declare the word that the Lord had given to him. God's servants must declare his word. Now the implications of that for us this morning are bracing. We are God's servants. As God's servants, we are obligated to declare his word. You have been given the word of God, and that word you are to declare. It's not optional. You don't get to pick which parts you want to proclaim and which parts you don't. You don't get to settle on the comfortable, pleasant parts, hold back on the parts that are more difficult, less fashionable. You've been given the Word of God and you are to declare all of it. In Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul is meeting with the elders of the church in Ephesus. He knows it will be his last time before death that he gets to see them. And Paul says something astounding to the Ephesian elders. Uh, Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 25, Paul says this, 
And now behold, I know that ye all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, shall see my face no more. Wherefore I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. No matter what might come, Paul declares that he is innocent. He's not accountable. He's not culpable for whatever errors, whatever backslidings lay ahead for the Ephesian church. Paul was innocent. And he was innocent because he had declared to them all the counsel of God. Everything he had been given, all of God's Word, he had declared to them. And so his hands were clean. You see, Paul knew the weight of the charge that's being so explicitly made to Ezekiel in our passage this morning. When God's servants are given God's Word, they must declare it. If they don't, they're culpable. They're guilty in their silence. They're guilty for their silence. Not that their silence has somehow thwarted God's will. As we see with Ezekiel, even if God's servant does declare God's Word, the wicked won't hear it. The silence of God's servant doesn't thwart God's will, but it does bring guilt upon the silent servant. The, the silence of God's servant brings guilt upon him. The servant must declare the Word of God. Are you? Even when it's unpleasant, even when it's painfully awkward, even when you know in the pit of your stomach that it will only bring rejection, do you declare the Word of God? When you know that something is wrong, if a family member, friend, a brother or sister in the congregation, when someone is doing something that you know is wrong, do you say anything? Yes, in love, with gentleness, humility. But do you say anything? Or do you sit as a silent watchman while chastisement or judgment bears down on others? What about sharing the gospel? You know people who don't believe in Jesus. Their lack of faith will consign them to hell at the judgment. You know that. Do you say anything? Do you tell them what's coming? You know, with gentleness, with love. But do you tell them? It's not enough for a watchman just to be on the wall as an ornament. He has to say something. Your friends, your family members, uh, those who don't believe in Jesus and those who do and who are walking in rebellion, do you tell them that they're sinning, that judgment is coming? Do you tell them that they need the cleansing blood of Jesus to save their souls? Or do you see the howling judgment in the distance and hope desperately that someone else will tell them? You have the Word of God. You know what eternal life is. You know where salvation lies. You know what's righteous. You know what's wicked. You don't have the option of just keeping it to yourself. If you keep it to yourself, the blood of others will be on your hands. It's a blessing. It's salvation to know and to believe the gospel. But it's a weighty commission as well when you're called into the ministry particularly. Because God's servants must 
declare His Word. And that Word that they are obligated to declare, it's not some vapid, weak Word. As we find in the passage, God's servants must declare His all-revealing Word. Uh, Think again over what we've been considering, particularly in verses 20 and 21. Verses 20 and 21, God described what He calls a righteous man. First in verse 20, there's the righteous man who falls into sin. There's no warning from the prophet. He persists in that sin. He dies in his rebellion. Then in verse 21, that righteous man falls into sin, but he's told by the faithful prophet that he's in sin, that God's people ought not live as he is living. He repents of that sin, and he finds life. Do you see what the Word of God has done? The Word of God, and specifically a person's reaction to that Word, it discloses the true wickedness or the true righteousness of that person's heart. Now in verse 20, where the righteous man isn't warned by the prophet, he doesn't hear any additional word from God. The silent prophet refrains from speaking that word to him as he should. But that righteous man still does have some word from God. He lived his life in righteousness He knew what the will of God was. He wasn't called back from sin by the prophet, but presumably he knew that he was in sin in the first place. This reputedly righteous man has rejected the Word of God, and he has died. He's died in truth a wicked man in his iniquity. This man has rejected God's Word, and that rejection has unmasked him as, in truth, a wicked man. Exactly the opposite is true of the righteous man in verse 21. That man also is known to be a righteous man. He also falls into sin. But this man, when he's confronted with God's Word through the prophet, he repents. He finds life. This man has submitted to the Word, and he's found life. He submitted to God's Word, and that submission has shown that in truth he actually is a righteous man. In both cases... It has been the respective person's reaction to the Word of God that has revealed the true condition of his heart. You know, throughout verses 16 through 21, really, who are the wicked? The wicked are those who reject God's Word. Whether the prophet speaks to them, giving them a further word of God to reject, or whether the wicked don't hear from the prophet, but yet still have the original word from God that they reject, it's their rejection of the Word of God that marks them out as wicked. And who are the righteous? Well, the righteous are those who, whether being warned by the prophet, submit to God's Word. They may not do so always. Even the righteous man in verse 21 has fallen into sin for a time, but the overall final tenor of their hearts is one of submission to the Word. It's in a man's reaction to the Word that the true condition of his heart is revealed. You know, as Ezekiel goes proclaiming this message that God has committed to him, he won't be proclaiming some powerless word. He won't be just giving information to the people of Israel. He will be proclaiming the word of God that lays bare and uncovers the hearts of men. The word that divides between the wicked who reject it and the righteous who submit to it. God's servants must declare His all-revealing Word. Now, the, the power of the Word 
that Ezekiel proclaimed, or the power to lay bare the hearts of men, that power still resides in God's Word. It still resides in the Word that we, this morning, are to bear to the world around us. The Word that we, as in our ministry callings, are to be proclaiming to the Word. It still is one's reaction to the Word that discloses whether he is wicked or whether he is righteous. And let me put a very personal point on it. Your reaction to the Word manifests whether you are wicked or whether you are righteous. Your reaction to the Word manifests the true condition of your heart. A man may be marked by all manner of idiosyncrasies. He may be scarred by his own sin, by his own rebellion, and yet if he hears the Word and he submits to it, if he repents and he begins ever so haltingly to walk in obedience to that Word, he's righteous. It's your response to the Word that manifests the condition of your heart. How are you responding to the Word? Are you deaf to it? Have you heard it so often that you're resistant to it? Are you openly rebelling against it? Have you gotten to the point where you just simply don't really care what it says anymore? Maybe even just in certain areas, uh, areas of your life where you, that you've declared off-limits to the Lord. In those areas, do you just simply not care what the Word of God says? In your reaction to the Word, you are manifesting the heart of a wicked man, a wicked woman, and you must repent. On the other hand, are you submitting to the Word? Do you actually care what it says? Do you strive to render obedience to what it says? Your obedience might not be perfect. At times it might be buried beneath layers, years of built-up rebellion and habits and scars. At times it might be buried. But there is underlying obedience. And there is a desire for greater obedience to the Word. If you're submitting to the Word and you're seeking greater submission to the Word, then you're manifesting the character of a righteous man, a righteous woman. How are you responding to the Word? Because it's one's response to the Word that discloses the state of one's heart. Not longevity in the church, not necessarily one's reputation in the community, not one's attendance at a theological seminary, but a man or a woman's reaction to the Word. That's what discloses the state of the heart. God's servants must declare His all-revealing Word. And their commitment to that all-revealing Word is to be absolute. You know, Continuing through the passage that's before us, we see that God's servants must declare His all-revealing Word and nothing else. You know, Look with me at verses 22 through 27 of the passage. Uh, God just has called Ezekiel to serve as the watchman for Israel. And then we read, beginning in verse 22, And the hand of the Lord was there upon me. And He said unto me, Arise, go forth into the plain, and I will there talk with thee. Then I arose and went forth into the plain, and behold, the glory of the Lord stood there, as the glory which I saw by the river of Kibar. And I fell on my face. 
Then the Spirit entered into me and set me upon my feet and spake with me and said unto me, Go, shut thyself within thine house. But thou, O son of man, behold, they shall put bands upon thee and shall bind thee with them, and thou shalt not go out among them. And I will make thy tongue cleave to the roof of thy mouth, that thou shalt be dumb, and shalt not be to them a reprover, for they are a rebellious house. But when I speak with thee, I will open thy mouth, and thou shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, He that heareth, let him hear, and he that forbeareth, let him forbear, for they are a rebellious house. In these verses, we begin to get into one of really the distinctive characteristics of Ezekiel's ministry, uh, one of the distinctive characteristics of the, the book that bears Ezekiel's name. You know, throughout the book of Ezekiel, the prophet is called time and again to bear God's message to Israel not only with what he says, but also with what he does. Ezekiel is to do things. He undertakes, he performs actions, quite often very bizarre actions, in order to bring God's message to bear upon Israel. You know, sometimes those are called sign acts. You know, the act itself is a sign, the act itself is a message from God to Israel. Israel is being called to action, called to account not only by what they hear the prophets say, but also by what they see the prophet do. Now, Ezekiel isn't the only prophet uh, who performs these sorts of acts, but the, the frequency and really, quite frankly, the bizarre nature of those acts in the book of Ezekiel make it pretty characteristic of his uh, particular ministry. And in these verses, we read one of the first of these sign acts that Ezekiel is to perform. In verse 22, we see that God has Ezekiel come out into the plain or into the valley. Ezekiel is alone. And as we find in verse 23, Ezekiel sees the same glorious vision of God that he had described back in chapter 1. And again, confronted with enveloped by the visible glory of the invisible God, Ezekiel collapses. In verse 24, the Spirit, again, as he had done earlier, he enters Ezekiel, sets him on his feet, and God begins to speak once again to Ezekiel. And God tells Ezekiel that the most profound of confinements is awaiting him. At the end of verse 24, God tells Ezekiel that he's to return to his home and he's to lock himself in. Then in verse 25, God tells Ezekiel that others will come and they will bind him. They'll tie him up. And then in verse 26, God tells Ezekiel that he will make Ezekiel's tongue stick to the roof of his mouth. He'll make Ezekiel dumb, mute, unable to speak. Ezekiel will be a silent prisoner in his own home. Through his own actions, locking himself in his home, through the actions of others, binding him with ropes, and through the direct action of God Himself making Ezekiel mute, Ezekiel will be a silent captive. He'll be, an angle, he'll be unable to mingle with the children of Israel. He'll be unable to speak to the children of Israel. Ezekiel will be very visibly a man set apart, except at select times. In verse 27, 
God says that there will be times when He will open Ezekiel's mouth. Times when God will permit this otherwise mute man to speak, allowing Ezekiel to speak precisely and exclusively the words that God has given to him. As God says in verse 27, at certain times He will open Ezekiel's mouth, He will permit the prophet to speak, and then at those times, Ezekiel will communicate to Israel the precise word that he's been given from God. At those times, and only those times, the lips of the mute prophet will thunder the word of God. And that word, as God goes on to say in verse 27, that word will have its effect. And just as we saw up in verses 16 through 21, uh, the hard hearts of some will reject it, the tender hearts of others will receive it, but the word will go out spoken by the mute man bound up as a prisoner of God, the word will go out. Ezekiel is about to find himself in a very bizarre, very poignant condition. And Ezekiel would remain in that condition for a long time. If you flip ahead to Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 21 and 22, you don't have to actually turn there if you were to look there. Uh, you see that Ezekiel is told by someone who has fled from Jerusalem that Jerusalem has fallen, that its defeat now is final, it's crushing. And in verse 22, there in Ezekiel 33, Ezekiel says that it was on that day that his muteness was lifted. It was on that day that God restored to him a freedom to speak at will. Well, in accordance with the dates that Ezekiel himself provides, that means that Ezekiel was mute for a little bit over seven years. For over seven years, the only words that Ezekiel was able to speak were the precise words that God had given to him. The words that God gave to Ezekiel in order that they might be given to Israel. Now do you see what God is doing here? He's making clear clear to Ezekiel, clear to all of the exiles amongst whom Ezekiel is ministering, that Ezekiel is not his own man. He's God's man. Ezekiel's movements aren't his own movements. Ezekiel's words aren't his own words. Everything that Ezekiel does has a divine purpose. And when he speaks, it's the word of the sovereign Lord that he speaks. Ezekiel is a man who's speaking cannot be ignored. It can't be belittled. It can't be marginalized. Because if there are words crossing his lips, those words are the words of God. The very fact that you hear Ezekiel saying these words guarantees that these words are God's words. Ezekiel very literally cannot speak anything but God's words. In all of these bizarre, obscure things, that's what God is making clear. Ezekiel is His servant. And when Ezekiel speaks, he speaks with the authority, he speaks with the Word of God Himself. Every sound that issues from his mouth being not something of Ezekiel's initiative, but of God's initiative, of the emergence of the scroll that Ezekiel had eaten uh, prior to our passage this morning. 
God's servants must declare His all-revealing Word and nothing else. Now certainly, as we've said before, none of us are Ezekiel. But there is something here that all of us need to consider. How prominent in our conversation, and you all know when I say conversation, I mean what we say, what we do, the overall communication of our lives. How prominent in our conversation is the Word of God? Now, we're not limited to only speaking God's Word as Ezekiel was. And when we do speak God's Word, we speak it in a different way than Ezekiel did. God was giving Ezekiel new revelation that he was to speak. Uh, the word that we speak is the word that God has given in the Scriptures. Uh, there are many differences between Ezekiel and us. But the overall principle isn't different. God's people are to be a people who speak His Word. God's Word is to be of the utmost prominence in our lives, in our conversations. Outside of God's Word, Ezekiel was mute. Outside of God's Word, Ezekiel did not, in fact, he could not say anything. What about you? If you were to remove from your conversation everything pertaining to the Word of God, if you were to remove your speaking of God's Word, your speaking about God's Word, your speaking of Christ, if you were to remove those things from your average daily conversation, would there be anything left? If you removed those things from your conversations, would your days look any different? Would your days be largely silent? Or would they be just about as filled with speaking as they are now? Is your conversation peppered with God's Word? Or is God's Word almost entirely absent from, or at the best, peripheral to, the overall communication of your life? It ought to be prominent. But more particularly, what about your future ministry? Will it center upon God's Word? Or will it center upon your own preferences? Will it center upon your own opinions? Upon your own interests? If a man or a woman happens into the church that you pastor on a Lord's Day morning, is he or she likely to hear the bare Word of God or just the interest of the preacher, a harangue of the preacher's? And this might be even more challenging. The people whom you pastor, not the ones who just kind of show up and then leave, but the ones who always are there, the ones who know you, the ones who see you, the ones who see how you act, the ones who see how you react. When you speak, when you speak into their sin, when you speak into their pain, has your testimony among them been of such a nature that in your words, they hear the words of God? Or are they inclined to think that your words are just you sounding off again about your opinions, your hobby horse? Uh, will you speak only God's Word? Or will His Word be mixed with your opinion, your preference? Because brothers, if it is, if God's Word is mixed with your Word, it's your testimony to that Word that is muted. Uh, two of the most difficult moments uh, of my pastoral ministry both came in a session room, a uh, consistory room for you uh, non-Presbyterians. And they both depended entirely on the men around the table with me 
believing that what I said wasn't my opinion. It was the opinion of God's Word. You'll be in that position one day. You'll be seated at that table one day. And your testimony then will depend on everything that you have done before then. When you speak, is it you speaking? Or is it God's Word coming through you? If your elders resist you, do they have reason to suspect that they're resisting the God whose Word you always speak to them? Or do they have reason to believe that they're just rejecting and resisting your own personal opinions? When you speak, when you speak into a contentious situation, when you speak into a situation that touches on your pride, are you speaking your words? Or are you speaking God's words? God's servants must declare His all-revealing Word and nothing else, or else their ministries are gone. Now, Ezekiel, both the prophet Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel is unrelenting. In our passage this morning, there's this high, weighty charge that's placed upon Ezekiel, that's placed upon the church of God. In a world that is obsessed with so many appetites and desires, a, a world that's consumed with so many other priorities, God's people are to be a people almost fanatical in their devotion to His Word. Almost fanatical in their commitment to making that Word known. A commitment that's rooted in the conviction that God's Word is powerful. It's able even to lay bare the hearts of men. God's servants must declare His all-revealing Word and nothing else. Even when that Word is hard, even when it speaks of judgment, it is all that they have and it's all that they offer. It's God's Word and His people, His servants, bring it to the world. God's servants must declare His all-revealing Word and nothing else. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God and Father in heaven, we rejoice this morning that Thou hast given unto Thy people Thy Word, that Word that is sharper than any two-edged sword, that Word that is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. And we give Thee thanks, O Lord, that Thou hast called us by the gracious moving of Thy Spirit that Thou hast been pleased even to call some of us into the ministry of that Word. And we beg, O Lord, that Thou wouldst give us faithfulness, that we might know Thy Word, that we might speak it with boldness, and that we might speak it in such a way that it does as Thou hast intended it to do, that it exalts the Lord Jesus and brings all glory to Him. Do what we pray. We ask it in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.